Well, let's uh, let's just wrap up with a brief time in God's Word this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Today, again, Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Um, today, we're just going to go through a bit of a review from some of the principles we picked up from last week. And we'll continue to talk about this idea and this connection between freedom and fruitfulness. And the need to be free so that we can be fruitful. Um, so I want to start by talking about the word success. i talked to a few people about this this week. And I, I want to just start by with this particular point. It is, it is right to seek success. It is right to seek success. The word is so often uh, distorted and perverted that we often are afraid to just say, I want to be successful. It, 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 that's not the problem. The, the problem is always the definition of success, right? But it is right to seek success. Uh, let me just walk you through a few important uses of the word success in scriptures. In Joshua 1, 7, God says to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the Lord that Moses, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have good success wherever you go. Uh, it, as a summary statement of, of all that God was doing in David's life, it says in 1 Samuel eighteen fourteen, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Nehemiah 1, 11, Nehemiah, before he is about to spring this proposition on the king, he says, O Lord, he prays, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. You know, Psalm 118, uh, verse uh, 24, uh, in, in the morning uh, when we made our eggs back in Belleville, the, the company that we bought our eggs from always had this verse in the egg carton. So the first thing you'd see when you opened up the egg carton was, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What we forget is the next verse is, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. So here's someone looking at the, the morning and saying, Lord, give me success for this day. Proverbs 3, uh, verse 3 and 4, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So let's just, uh, let's just say that it's right to seek success and also that it's wrong not to seek success. Uh, we made this statement last week that you need to be careful of substituting fruitfulness with faithfulness. You know, there are people, I, I think we've all been here, especially in the professional world, where uh, a busyness can be a really nice substitute for productivity. You know, we can, we can look at our schedule we can look at, at, at our schedule and say, well, I'm being productive or I'm being faithful. But no, you're just being busy. You're being cluttered. You're not, you're, not, you're not being fruitful. You're just moving stuff around a lot. You're moving the piles, but you're not really getting anything done. Well, in the Bible, there is no distinction between faithfulness and fruitfulness. The, same, the two are the same uh, because you can't, in the Bible, be faithful unless you are pursuing fruitfulness. You're commanded to pursue fruitfulness. Um, so there's not, there's not a difference in the scriptures between those two words, but we would sometimes drive there, there to be a difference between the two. I'd point you to say Luke nineteen eleven, which is the, uh, 
the prodigal of, of the uh, unproductive or unsuccessful servant, the prodigal, the parable of the, uh, of the squandering servant, the one who says, Lord, I knew you to be cruel, and, and so on and so forth, and so I buried my talents. You know, the, the measure there is, is a faithfulness that is associated with fruitfulness. So it's right to seek success. It's wrong not to seek success. And as we said before, it's not so much, the problem isn't so much being overly success conscious. It's having the wrong definition of success to begin with. The Bible has a graduated revelation of what success is. And so, so maybe at the beginning of the Bible, success is just like a good crop, right? Or a victory over a war or a victory over an enemy. And those are, those are good measures of success. Those are good things. But as God's full revelation comes through in the new covenant, we see that in the same way that freedom has been redefined to mean free from sin, free in Christ, so fruitfulness has been fully clarified as to mean more than just accomplishing what you want to accomplish we see in our passage in Acts 2 that fruitfulness begins to have a very specific definition. Success begins to have a very successful def- or a very specific definition. So verse 1 of Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost is their success festival, it's their harvest festival, it's the, it's the measure of fruitfulness and abundance. Uh, when this day arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So we wound up with this definition of fruitfulness or success. It's God's presence with God's people for God's praise. And we get that from this text, but also many others. God's presence is the spirit shown in this text. God's people are all gathered together in one place. And the presence of God is is amongst the people of God. And that's producing the praise of God. It overflows. But first, first it happens inward, which we'll talk about next week. It happens in the body, and then it overflows outside the body. And this is God's basic definition of fruitfulness. And you can pick other passages in scripture and get the sense that these three ingredients are essential and that you can't have just one. They all three go together. So for instance, one of the most famous passages in scripture is John verse 15, verse five. Now see if you can pick up the three elements, presence, people, and praise in this passage. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now notice there's no communication that you should desire to bear fruit. Because the desire for success, the desire for fruitfulness is an assumption of Scripture. right? It's an assumption. What it's saying is, is that success, fruitfulness, comes from abiding in him, so this sort of, I'm connected to his presence. I'm consciously aware of my, my place in Christ. I'm, I'm living in union with Christ. And where's the, where's the people in this? Well, it's, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, it's this whole idea of a group of people doing this all together. So that even in this text, you see these three elements, presence, people, praise. So here's the basic deal. 
if you want to work in harmony with the created world, and more importantly, if you want to work in harmony with the creator of the world, then you'll adopt his definition of success as your definition of success, and you'll bend your whole life to its fulfillment. And his definition of success, from the garden to the garden at the end of the story, from the garden at the beginning of the story to the garden at the end end of the story, from the beginning of time to the end of time, God's definition of abundance, fruitfulness, success is his people in his presence for his praise. That's what we see happening in Eden. That's what we have. That's what we see happening in eternity. And if you want to be successful, you won't invent your own term, your own definition. You'll adopt the one that is written into and sewn into the very fabric of creation. And that is this very definition. This is what success is. This is what fruitfulness is. And all we need to do is just begin to conform to this particular thing. And that's the problem. Is that all we need to do is to conform to God's standards and we could be fruitful. That's a problem because sin keeps us from true success. Sin keeps us from true success. Not only because in sin, we are constantly redefining what success is, but sin also works against us to keep us from doing that which we know we ought to do. So sin has two, at least two effects on our successfulness. The one is, is that it keeps us subjected to our passions and to the kind of spirit of the age, which is always changing, so that we're kind of living in this constant changing definition of what it means to be successful and what we want, what we're after. Sin affects that. Sin causes that. But sin also affects us in that once we rightly identify God's definition of faithfulness and truth, we cannot follow it because we are unable in ourselves to conform to God's definitions, God's standards. That's what sin is. Sin keeps us from conforming. So sin, sin is, uh, is this, the idea is that sin is the salt on the earth that, that, that doesn't let anything grow. Sin is the roundup, you know, sprayed into the garden. You know, sin is the thing that keeps everything from, from keeps anything from growing. So Proverbs twenty eight nineteen says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Well, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. I think, Ryan, you read this uh, a few weeks ago. Whoever works his, his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. You know, well, what's a worthless pursuit? Well, worthless pursuit is anything that's not following after God's definition of success, right? I mean, a worthless pursuit is pursuing your own definition of success. A worthless pursuit is kind of pursuing your own passions. And if you do that, you will be, you will have a life of poverty. You will have a spiritual poverty. You'll have a legacy poverty. And this is what I was getting at last week. If you're evaluating a local church, I would, you want to look and say, is this a fruitful place? Is life happening here? Is reproduction happening here? Is, is this a fruitful place or is this a fruitless place? Are new Christians being birthed here? Or is this place somehow in some level dominated by particular sins that cause an absence of fruitfulness? That's, that's a basic question you'd want to ask. 
the the thing that keeps us from asking that is we just get really used to our own definition of success. So over time, in our view of church, we can begin to to redefine what winning looks like. And winning eventually looks like a safe place for our families. Winning eventually looks like doctrinal fidelity. Winning eventually looks like discernment or safety or growth in head knowledge. And we adopt all of these other definitions of success and apply them to our church experience. Oftentimes, we, we do that so we can still feel like we're winning when we're not. But if we want to be faithful to God's created order and to his particular definition, which is the definition of success, we have to take a step back and say, fruitfulness should be our expectation. Fruitfulness should be our expectation. What sin is keeping this fruitfulness from taking place? Sin causes a desert experience every time. Ephesians 5.11, Paul tells them, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Meaning that sin is unfruitful. Sin is not about reproduction. Sin is about death. Sin is about killing existing life and certainly sterilizing the possibility of future life. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. So sin sin affects every facet of fruitfulness. Sin affects every facet of fruitfulness. So let's talk about, we have these three things that we identify as all working together to produce fruitfulness. We have God's presence, God's people, and God's praise. Let's talk about how sin affects those for a moment. How does, how does sin affect God's presence? Well, if you're a follower in Jesus Christ, you have an objective place in his presence, and you will always have that in Christ. As a member of the covenant, as a partaker of the covenant of God, you will always have a legal position, a legal standing before Christ. But the truth is, is that your practical sin affects your practical enjoyment of God. So that you may have access to God's presence in a legal sense, but no enjoyment of God's presence in an experiential sense. Your experience of God is indeed dependent on personal holiness. Right? John Owen uh, said, The life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on our mortification of sin. The life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on our mortification of sin. If we're not actively pursuing righteousness and putting to death the sins that, that, that maybe we don't even call sins anymore, then our practical enjoyment, both as a body and as individuals of the presence of God, will be compromised. Right? So, so there's a way in which sin affects your enjoyment of God's presence. And, you know, as we've said multiple times, God is a person. We're in relationship with a person. And there are certain rules of relationship that apply no matter what. And our relationship with God is subjective at some level. Our, our enjoyment of that relationship is subjective in the sense that we are either walking with him or we're not. But God is also not like us in other senses in that he doesn't leave us high and dry. He doesn't walk away entirely when we 
break his heart when we disobey, when we sin against him. God is like us in the sense that our relational quality will be connected to our obedience. God is not like us in the sense that the relationship does, he will not sever the relationship because of our sin. He is more faithful than we are, but he is still a person. He's the person. And certain rules of relationship still apply. So sin affects our experience or our enjoyment of God's presence. And if that was the only thing, by the way, you can see echoes of that in Eden, right? The sin cast them away from God's presence into a land of toil and thorns where fruitfulness itself is compromised and challenged. So this associate, so even if all sin did was keep us from God's presence, we couldn't be fruitful. Because we need God's presence, his holy presence, his power to do the things that we talked about in the testimony time. That wasn't any person. That was Jesus seeking and saving the lost through some people. So if even if only sin, if all sin did was keep us from God's presence, we would not be, we would not be fruitful. We, would, we could not be successful. We need God's practice, practical presence to be successful. That's what we said last year. You can't go on forever. It is dangerous to go on forever, not experiencing the practical enjoyments of a life in Christ. You must know these things. They are a necessary part of life. Well, but it doesn't just affect that. Sin also affects your connection to God's people, right? So now we've got the second thing that's challenged. Not only does sin affect your enjoyment of God's presence, but sin will most certainly affect your connection to God's people. You know, as I studied this passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it was surprising to me to see how often many of the pastors and preachers that I consider to be the most faithful emphasize the beginning of verse, uh, the, the phrase in verse 1, they were all together in one place. For the Puritans, this unity was a predictor or a precursor of God's power coming, Right? They saw the unity of the church, and they were all together in one place as, wow, that's, that's where all the power comes from. I, I don't think that's necessarily the main point of this passage, but that phrase, they were all together in one place, is huge. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I just want to show you this Spurgeon quote. And in any church, this is from Spurgeon's sermon on this text, in any church where there is no strife as to who shall be the greatest— no division about peculiarities, no fighting for respectabilities and selfishness. When the church is of one accord, then we may expect to hear the sound of abundance and heaven's reign. But sin keeps us from experiencing this, right? Sin keeps us from experiencing all this. We, we don't get any of that if we walk in our own sin. We're all about divisions. We're all about who's the greatest. We're all about being selfish, So at another level, our fruitfulness is killed by sin because we can't have the relationship we need with God's people. So now we're, we can't have, we can't have the enjoyment we need in God's presence and we can't have the relationship we need with God's people. So sin is just like killing fruitfulness at every level. But I want to talk a little bit more as I began to talk last week about how sin affects our ability to live for God's praise. So People who are not active in sharing their faith, um, they, they believe perhaps that they have a high view of Scripture, but practically speaking, Scripture has taken a, a new and 
an inappropriate role in their lives because Scripture has become a suggestion. So let me just say that one more time. When we are not active, when we are not bending our lives toward the direction of being gospel sharers, we are functional. We have a functionally broken relationship with Scripture. We may claim that we believe the Bible. We may claim that it is God's inspired word, but we are living as if all of the passages which so clearly push us forward into evangelism, we're living as if all of those are suggestions. And it's a dangerous thing to begin to treat the Bible like a suggestion book. There's a certain urgency I feel related to us being one and in unity and obedience about this issue because over the next several months, every seven verses or so in the book of Acts will tell us that we should be sharing our faith. And it's not so much that that's the thing right now as it is the continuation of one thing, and that is, will we take the Bible, God's holy word, seriously? Will we be doers of the word and not hearers only? Friends, I've lived this. You've, I'm sure, lived this. You can develop quite a callus on your heart by continually passing through passages with a maybe later, or that's not for me. You see all of these great errors in the church that have come up, you know, that come up over time. Where do those come from? Why do we, why do we suddenly shift what is the clear teaching on sexual ethics? Why do we suddenly shift what is the clear teaching on, on complementarianism? Why do we suddenly shift what is the clear teaching that God's continuing to work through his spirit in the world today? Because we say that doesn't apply to me. And we develop calluses on our heart. You know, I'm, I'm simply called, bottom line, to love you and protect you against anything that could be threatening you. And a future journey through multiple commands to be active in sharing your faith with an attitude of casualness, with an attitude of treating God's word as a suggestion, that's not good for you going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you in ways that you don't know it's going to hurt you. And so I will be consistent and clear and forceful in telling you this isn't optional and it is not good for your soul to think it could be. God's word is clear on this account. Sin is keeping you from being fruitful. The sin of not believing God's word is God's word is keeping you from being fruitful. Well, in the same way, people who are not active in sharing their faith also have a problem with practical holiness. People who are are not active in sharing their faith um, do not believe that they should place obedience to God at at the top. They do not believe that they should pursue practical obedience with urgency. Now, again, saying these things, here's, here's, the, here's the basic truth. I was telling somebody the other day, like, you've got to, like, learn how sinners work. Rocks fall, sinners sin. The basic truth is, is you're okay. You're okay. I could talk to a million people today. Almost all of them will be okay with me telling them that they're a sinner. You're not okay with me telling you what kind of sin. Right? Because there's not an urgency to immediate, practical holiness, right? The the, the idea that we need to be holy because without such holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
The idea that we need to be holy, and that means to be obedient, and that means to pursue him urgently, that is central to the faith. That is central to the faith. And you know what? In any given church, some issue, some pet issue, is going to be the functional test of whether people believe in functional holiness. It'll be something everywhere. It may be giving. It, 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 may, be, it may be politics, you know. There needs to be, it could be a million different things. But every church has a culture that winds up saying, we believe all of these, but we don't believe these. Because sinners sin. Rocks fall and sinners sin. So someone who is not active in sharing their faith does not have an active, healthy understanding of practical holiness. They don't understand how important obedience is. They'll tell you all day they do, but they don't. So sin keeps them from being fruitful in that way as well. You know, someone who's not active in sharing their faith doesn't have God's perspective on suffering. Evangelism, let's just be clear, is elective suffering. You're signing up, right? All of us are wondering, how will we be if sickness came into our life? If we lost a loved one, how would we be? How would our faith sustain us? But we all know there are certain things that God calls us to do where we're not waiting for it to come. We're signing up for it. And when you are active in sharing your faith, you are choosing to live a life of suffering. No one who desires to live a godly life will not be persecuted, right? So, so evangelism is elective suffering in the same way that giving is elective suffering, in the same way that attending church and being committed to a church is elective suffering, in the same way that coming here every Sunday to hear me is elective suffering. We're choosing to do certain things because we believe that on the other side of that threshold of pain is, is resurrection. But when we are not active in sharing our faith, it's, it's often, a, 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 not often, I mean, I think there's always this element we know it's going to hurt. We know it's going to be difficult. Now, we, we vastly overstate how painful it will be. But we know, if I do this, I will experience more bad than if I didn't do this. Which, is, which shows a distorted view of suffering. We don't understand that suffering produces great things. We don't understand that weakness produces strength. And that there is a resurrection behind every hardship that Christ calls us to. Sin keeps us from really having a right, godly definition of love. Indwelling sin can make loving our neighbors in the most basic way you can imagine to seem to be more than is called of us. There's a, there's a Puritan pastor named Edward Payson. He wrote a sermon on hell. And he says, dare you go to God and say, Lord, I believe thy word. I believe that all thy threatenings will be fulfilled and then turn away and coolly pursue your worldly business without uttering one agonizing cry for those who are exposed to these threatenings. So, so hell is a real place. A bunch of people are going there. It is entirely unnatural for you to not be moved by that. Whatever your theology, it is entirely unnatural for you to not be grieved and moved with compassion over the idea that people are going to hell. That is entirely unnatural. Unnatural in a uh, roundup, sprayed on your heart kind of way. Like, that's not okay. He goes on to say, Dare you go and claim 
relationship to Christ and profess to have his spirit without which you are none of his and then make no effort or only a few faint efforts to save those who, who for whom he shed tears, not only blood. Oh, if you can do this, if you can ignore this, where is your heart? I will not say that you are a Christian. I will wonder if you are a man. You know, the, the sterility with which we approach hell with a few handful of, of, of antiserum from a few theological ideas we think we know, which we really don't know, uh, and we say, well, this is God's sovereignty, and this is, friends, Jesus mourned for the broken and the lost. Simple as that. And the absence of that is, is, is a picture of the sterility and the barrenness of our hearts and how sin has, has wiped away this good, fresh, earnest soil in which good things can grow. And we've replaced it with a bunch of you know, theological things that we think we understand. Here's the deal. I'm saying all that to say you cannot be fruitful unless you are free. You cannot be fruitful unless you are free of sin. You cannot be fruitful unless you are free of the enslavement which sin brings. The truth is, the disciples were previously paralyzed by every sin I listed. The disciples were paralyzed by every sin I listed, but then the better Passover sacrifice came, right? The better Passover sacrifice came, and through Christ they were set free from this slavery to indwelling sin. And all of these things I just described began to be loosened so that 50 days after the cross, when Pentecost arrived, they found themselves free. Free of the fear of man. Free of the sinful view of suffering. Free from a low view, a self-centered view of Scripture. They found themselves free. They were free because the better Passover lamb had come and paid a better price for a worse slavery. And the slavery that dwelled in their hearts, that kept them attached to their selfishness, that kept them from doing what they know they should do, the slavery was gone. They were free. And because they were free, they could be fruitful. And friends, if you are not fruitful, there's a chain around your ankle. There is. There's a chain around your ankle. I'm not telling you how many baskets of fruit you should produce. And I'm not telling you how quickly there ought to be fruit. But many of you have been Christians for quite some time. There's a chain around your ankle. And it's the fear of man. It's the pride that, that comes in and, and, and wrongly applies Scripture to soothe your conscience when you should let your conscience scream at you. It's the lack of tenderness toward the lost. It's the lack of hopefulness for conversion. It's the lack of confidence in God's promises. Your brain is so often more convinced of possible outcomes six iterations down. You're working the variable tree. You're in like parallel universe things. And you are like working and working and working, thinking what would happen? What would happen? How would this go? How would this go? And your heart has no place for the promise of God to weight down all of those things and for Jesus just to simply say and satisfy you in his saying, I am with you always. Anyone who calls upon me will be saved. Anyone who trusts in me will never be put to shame. 
Sin keeps us from being fruitful. Unless we experience and experience and experience and re-experience the Passover, which brings us deep freedom, we will not experience success as God has it defined. We will not be fruitful as we are called to be fruitful. And so the, 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 the thing sets before you in the way that I love the way Psalm 68 does this, the way that it sets, sets this before you. It says, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Another version says a sun-soaked land. It's the desert. Friends, it doesn't matter that you're slaves because we have someone who will get you out of prison and he will lead you to prosperity. What matters is if you're rebellious. If after time and time of hearing God's clear call to follow him and trust him in this way, to see Jesus stretch out his hand, you're looking at the water and saying, people don't walk on water. And Jesus says, yeah, but, but people with me do. Will you be rebellious and consistently push back from God's clear command that it's time? It's time. It's time to make this a centerpiece of your life. If you'll be rebellious, you will continue to experience fruitlessness. You will continue to live in a sun-scorched land. But if you don't want to be rebellious, if you want to be free, if you want the chain off your ankle, we know the great chain breaker. The cross of Jesus Christ sets people free from slavery to sin. It sets people free when they're saved, and it sets people free 20 years later when they've enslaved themselves to all sorts of other things. The Jesus that we serve is the great chain breaker and he will come and he will give you freedom. He will give you freedom from the fear of man. He will give you freedom from a fear of suffering. He will give you freedom from self-obsession. He will give you freedom. And how will you experience that freedom? Well, you'll take one step further than your chain would have let you take. And you will never know that freedom unless you take that step. Unless you take that step one step further than your chain would let you, you'll never know if you're free. You'll never experience and enjoy that freedom. Years ago, I caught this fish, and I, and I, and I didn't have a good place to keep him. I was in my kayak. And so what I did was I just tied him. He's a good-sized bass. I tied him to the side of my kayak, and I just continued fishing throughout the day. And eventually I realized I wasn't going to catch any more fish. This was the only guy. I'm just going to keep one fish. It's not enough to, to clean and cook and all that. So I, I, I take the, the leader off of, his, off of him. And I'll tell you, for 30 minutes at least, that fish kept swimming alongside that boat. Because he was so used to being enslaved that he assumed that was still where he was. If God is bringing us consistently to these passages... And he is doing that through his work. I don't have an evangelistic axe to grind, by the way. I have, a, I have an obedience axe to grind. This isn't, this isn't a flavor. This isn't an elective. This is just what God's word says we should do. And if God brings us together and we experience his word and the presence he brings through his word, we experience that as his people. And he says, people, you're not slave to this anymore. You need to step further. Well, then we should step further. 
And we should believe what Psalm 68, 6 says. That he leads prisoners out to prosperity. And I just want you to be a freed prisoner more than I want you to be a rebel in the, in the desert. Somehow trying to define the desert as fruitful. Somehow trying to say that the desert marks your doctrinal fidelity. Or the desert marks your faithfulness. No, the desert's the desert. That's where rebels go. David, as he is heartbroken over his sin in Psalm 51, asks the Lord something that I'm going to ask for us today. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. A willing spirit. Lord, give us a willing spirit. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and up, give us a willing spirit. Uphold us, Lord. We won't, we won't do this if you don't hold us up. Hold us up with a willing spirit. What's the byproduct of someone who has a willing spirit and the joy of their salvation? What's the next thing they do? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Someone who has the joy of their salvation and who is being upheld by a willing spirit teaches sinners the gospel. They go to the world with the gospel. If you aren't doing that, you need this. You need God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we call upon you and count on your promises that you are all-powerful and all-inclined uh, through Christ to bless us. And Lord, there's a million things that we could ask for that, were, that are good, but they're secondary to this. Lord, give us a heart to follow you and to love you and to want you and to know you and to walk with you as you continue to fulfill your mission to fill the world with people who praise your name. God, give us, an up, uh, uphold us with a willing spirit. God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Give us the grace to see how much grace we've been given. God, I'm concerned that those who don't show their, share their faith don't have faith to share. That can either be because there's a, a, a terminal problem, as in they don't actually have faith and never did, or it could be because they, Lord, need grace and faith restored to them. Lord, help them to see this is not an excuse to suspend taking another step. Let them not use this as a way to uh, procrastinate obedience. Let them take that next step, Lord, today. Let them walk a little further than what they would normally walk with that stupid chain around their ankle. And let them experience your faithfulness and your care, your presence, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.